You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Thank you, Amy. Well, it's good to be back in our series in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, digital or paper, um, let's turn to Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. So sometimes you guys all know our lives revolve around traditions that we have, right? Um, Traditions can be very powerful, very near and dear to our hearts. Some are lighthearted, some are more serious, right? Think about your own life. So for our family, for example, every Christmas Eve, the tradition is we have people over to our home and we have ham and potato soup every Christmas Eve. It'd be like heretical if we didn't do that, right? That's just our tradition. Uh, like Think about weddings. Wedding culture in America has so many traditions attached to it. Like the dad walks her down the aisle, the, the, the bride is in white, you know, you got to have flowers and a reception and all of this stuff. It's just a tradition. It's not the law. It's just a tradition, right? Uh, we got American traditions. We fire, have fireworks on the 4th of July, right? We have football traditions. Thanksgiving, it's the Cowboys and it's the Lions every Thanksgiving, Right? Every church culture has traditions, things that aren't necessarily law, just things that we choose to do, like we sing songs in a certain musical style. We have buildings that look a certain way. We have kids' education on Sunday morning in a specific way. So the list goes on and on. All these things are simply just traditions, preferences would be a way to say it, meaning they're habitual things that we do practices that we choose to follow because we ascribe some subjective value to potato soup on Christmas Eve, educating kids on a Sunday morning in a certain way, or going to see fireworks. But the key this morning that we're going to see is that these traditions that we have, they don't bear the same weight as God's revealed word. The Bible does not say that you have to have next-gen programming on a Sunday morning or or you're in sin. The Bible does not say that you have to go to fireworks on Independence Day. The the Bible clearly does not say that the Lions and Cowboys have to play on Thanksgiving, right? These are all just preferences. These are preferences based on a variety of factors. Now, I may or may not conform my life to these things, and it's not a sin issue, right? I don't have to do these things. No eternal consequences if I don't participate in these traditions or preferences. But the Bible does say that there are clear things that are not just tradition. They're not just cultural. that are not just preferences. Lots of things. For example, like Ephesians 4.32, be forgiving of one another as Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's not a tradition. That's not a preference. That's a command. 
from God. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Be generous. Matthew 28, 19, make disciples. Go, make disciples of all nations. This is God's clear, revealed will for those who name him as Lord. And it doesn't mean that I perfectly achieve these things as if I'm trying to earn my standing with God based on my obedience. No, but we know that this is God's revealed will. And, and so in light of the gospel, I'm, I'm willing to repent when I fail. So on the one hand, as Christians, we recognize that we have traditions, preferences that we feel strongly about, and we have God's revealed will for his people that we also feel strongly about. So what's the point? The point here in all of this is that we have to be super clear on that those things that we do that are man-made, created traditions, and what is clearly God-made and revealed in the Bible. If we don't, we run a huge risk. We run the risk of burdening people in ways that God never intended them to be burdened and ignoring what God does clearly ask us to focus on. So in our text today, we're going to see this on display. We're going to see this vividly on display. We're going to see people get all screwed up, and Jesus is going to expose them with this and why it's such a big deal. So let's, let's look at our Bible. Let's look at Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. But the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, And said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, but they do not wash their hands when they eat? So sometimes in the Bible, there's just things that we have to explain uh, to understand the world of the Bible. And here's one of those times. Okay, so I give you some background information to have this land on us with power. We have to understand the religious world of the Bible. So in the world of the Bible, where Jesus was, the Jewish religious authorities came up with all of these traditions surrounding the clearly revealed Old Testament law, okay? So there were all these requirements that they, that they dreamed up that accompanied the Old Testament. For example, God clearly says in the Old Testament at that time that he wanted his worship leaders to wash their hands before they led worship, to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean before they led worship. So that, that's clear in the Bible for that time then in how God called his people to do worship. But the religious leaders of Jesus's day, they took that clearly revealed principle and they expanded on it. And they said that not just the worship leaders, but all people had to wash their hands before eating. And not just generally wash their hands, very, very specifically, like with the amount of water and one hand versus two hand and all this really intense specificity 
surrounding that. So they went above and beyond what God clearly said in his word. And if not, they deemed people unclean. And in Jesus' day, that was a big deal. So what's going on here? Why are they going after Jesus? Well, because they obviously, people must have noticed that Jesus' guys, his disciples, they were not following this tradition of the Pharisees. And so what does that mean? Well, it's got to go back to Jesus because he's the leader. Obviously, he's the one that probably taught them to behave this way. They're just following their leader. So they're going after Jesus. So they come to Jesus because they knew he must have taught them this that didn't correspond with what they wanted and what they believed was right. And let's look at how he answers them. Look at verse 3. He doesn't answer them directly. Verse 3, he answered them. See, he turns it around on them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? So he's going to show them that they're inconsistent that they're hypocrites. Verse 4, for God commanded, so he's quoting the Old Testament here, the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So consider this first. He reminds them of what God clearly revealed in the Bible, in the Old Testament. He quotes the fourth commandment, and he quotes Exodus 21, 17 about the severity of disrespecting your parents. And he just says to the Pharisees, guys, you guys say you love the Old Testament. You should be clear on this. That's basically what he's saying to them. But now he's going to show them that they're hypocrites. Look at verse 5. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Now this might sound confusing. So again, I just need to explain something for us to understand the world of the Bible and what Jesus is getting at here. So there was a cultural practice in Jesus's day for the Pharisees. And they made up this tradition that if they took their money and set it aside for something related maybe to the Jewish tabernacle, the Jewish synagogue, something related to Jewish worship, that they could declare themselves free from having to use money to support aging parents. So in the world of the Bible, supporting aging parents would be a big deal. They didn't have Medicare, Medicaid. They didn't have nursing homes. Very common that you're going to care for your parents as they get old and have health problems. Very normal. Still very, very normal in much of the world. But these guys said, hey, I'm free of that. I don't have to be generous with my money with my parents if I dedicate it over here to what we would call the church. But see, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that oftentimes that money was never used in the way they said it was going to be used. It could be a delay. It would be like me seeing my parents suffering in, in, in their 70s and just saying, ah, I'm giving money to the church so that's basically the extent of my generosity. So you guys, too bad. But Jesus is saying to these guys that say they love God's word, you guys should know what it means to honor your parents. 
God clearly has said, fourth commandment, honor your father and mother. You guys are not doing that. Jesus seems to think that caring for your parents is way closer to the heart of God's revealed will than washing hands before you eat. So here's the point. He's showing the Pharisees how they love their made-up traditions more than what God has clearly revealed. They love their non-biblical created preferences more than the clearly revealed word of God. And that's exactly what he says to them next. Look, look at the end of verse 6. So, here it is, for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. See that? See, so you've elevated your man-made created preferences, traditions, cultural practices over what God has clearly revealed. See that? End of verse 6. And then he just calls them hypocrites. You did, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There it is again. Teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. What, what men made up. So he just leaves them with this stinging rebuke. You can feel the weight of that. Quotes the Old Testament, which they claim to love, and says that Isaiah was actually talking about you guys. See it there in verse 7? Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. That's heavy. He's just saying that Pharisees, you guys give much evidence that you're simply fake. You're fake. He's saying they're in very dangerous territories, challenging them and calling them to repentance. And that's where our text leaves off. But I want to turn now and, and notice something. I think this is also the moment that's dangerous for us. Because it's so easy for us to read this account and think, yeah, Jesus, you get him. Go get him. You tell, tell it like it is, Jesus. Those Pharisees, man, they were just idiots. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. See, the problem is we can see their problems as Jesus exposes them, but I think he also wants this text to speak to our hearts as well by the power of the Holy Spirit and ask us, is there a heart of hypocrisy in us as well? Are there ways that we've taken tradition or preference and made it equal with God's word? Have we looked down on people who have different traditions or preferences just like the Pharisees looked down at Jesus and his disciples? But here's the rub. We all have traditions, preferences that we feel strongly about. That's just part of being a human being, right? Like for example, Kim and I, 
have a preference about how we have chosen to educate our kids. Schooling preferences. And obviously we feel strongly about that or we wouldn't spend the amount of time and effort we've invested in, in their education. And there's nothing wrong with that preference, that choice, for how we educate our kids. But where it would go wrong is exactly where it went wrong in this text. If we were to elevate our preferences to the same level as the Bible and say anyone who doesn't choose to educate their kids like we have is now in sin. The Bible doesn't say that. I might feel as strong about that preference as a lot of things I read in the Bible, but I have to be careful. So the Bible has not clearly said that you have to educate kids in this certain way. You have to homeschool your kids. You have to send your kids to public school. You have to send your kids to private school. Kim and I would never say you're in sin if you choose different schooling choices for your kids. So man, I just think as a church, it's good for us to kind of have a heart-to-heart about this issue because it can trip us up so easily and create, I mean, historically, this has created massive division among God's people needlessly because we don't know how to divide what's clearly biblical and what's just preference. So like in my lifetime, for those of you that are like 25 and younger, you won't relate to this, but when I was 20 years old, the huge controversy in the church was that electric guitar. Massive controversy. Have, we don't have drums this morning. Uh, we have before, not very often, but we'd love to have drums. But that was a big deal 25 years ago. Electric guitars, drums in church, people saying, man, that is sin. People leaving churches over that, calling other people sin, that they're in sin because of musical preferences. I think that grieves the heart of God. The Bible does not dictate a certain worship style. All it takes is to travel around the world and see lots of people have different types of music, you know, and and, and God doesn't declare A, B, and C about this type of instrument, this type of style of music. We have to be careful. What, what is preferential? What's cultural? What's clearly biblical? What's clearly biblical is that we're, to, we're called to sing. See Ephesians chapter 5. Sing. Make a joyful noise. Another classic one is, is the use of alcohol. In my lifetime, I've seen how alcohol preferences can divide people. My grandma told my sister 30 years ago that if there was alcohol at the wedding, she wasn't showing up. Now the Bible is clear. Drunkenness is a sin. That's the clear, revealed will of God. Again, Ephesians 5, don't get drunk with alcohol, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Clear. Drunkenness is never an option. But the Bible doesn't say that the, the, the responsible use of alcohol is, is, is sin. In fact, Jesus ushers in a whole new period of Christian history with a glass of wine in his hand. This is my, this is my blood given for you. 
So if your personal tradition or preference is total abstinence, then let no one look down on you. Do that by faith. If your tradition or preference is a glass of wine with dinner, let no one look down on you. Do that by faith. Do all things. Eat or drink to the glory of God. We have to have charity, love, and respect for one another in these differences that are not clearly biblical. Because it's, it's so easy for us, no matter what the issue is, alcohol or whatever, you can think up what your issue is. To look at that person, let's just say it's alcohol, and think, and what's wrong with that person that's abstaining? And they're so uptight. Why are they so uptight? But we wouldn't say that out loud. We'll say it in our hearts. And it just chips away at our unity. Or you look at that person that's partaking responsibly, and you think, hey, what's wrong with that person? That, it's just a slippery slope. And we don't say it out loud, but we say it in our hearts. And we chip away at our unity in unnecessary ways. We might feel superior based on non-biblical preferences, like the Pharisees, right? And Jesus is reminding us in Matthew 15 this morning to watch out. Watch out for man-made rules that God has not given you can't impose your tradition, preference on another believer. That leads to chaos in the church. Let's get even a little, let's, let's land a little closer to home. How about who you vote for? The Bible doesn't talk about voting. Voting didn't exist in the world of the Bible. So as a church, we're never going to stand up here. I guess I probably should say never. I've gotten burned. Never say never. It would be a stretch, I would imagine, to stand up here and say that God commands you, as a Christian, to vote for A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z. We could debate that, and you can send me Slack messages if you want. That's fine. But here's what I'm most interested in. I think this is the test of true discipleship. Like we, we have a, a catchphrase in our culture. You know, it's like you show up to Thanksgiving dinner with your family, and it's like, don't talk about what? Religion or politics, right? And I want to say, why? Assuming we're all believers there, what I want to say is, why is that? I think we're dumbing down our discipleship. Here's what I mean. Christians should be the first people to be able to talk about these things with each other. Why? Because we love each other. Because we don't feel defensive. Because we've got nothing to prove in light of the cross. We've got nothing to lose in light of the cross. We've got nothing to defend. Christ is my defender. Like, here's the true test of our discipleship. Can I talk about my preferential convictions with someone who doesn't share those convictions and still walk away loving that person without a fractured relationship? Do we have the Christian maturity to be able to do that? Can love cover that potentially disastrous conversation 
even if we disagree. I just preached it three weeks ago. Above all, what did 1 Peter 4 say? Love one another earnestly. Above your voting convictions, what? Love one another earnestly. Above your convictions about alcohol, love one another earnestly. Above your musical preferences, love one another earnestly. Can love, respect, humility be the overarching value? Hear that. Can love, respect, humility be the overarching value that guards and protects us even when we disagree? All families disagree. Right? My wife and I don't agree. The elders don't agree about everything. Love, respect, and humility is our covering in light of how Jesus has been so loving and humble towards us in the gospel. Or have I elevated my preferences and traditions to the level where I will die on this mountain no matter what and pay no attention to my emotions getting the better of me? See, my dream for us, just most honest, in this election season, is that we be so secure in our acceptance in Christ that we don't have to feel threatened or defensive if someone has political convictions that are different than mine. That exists in our church. Right? Could there be that level of fruit of the Spirit where I feel free to share my feelings without being condemned, by someone else, and I'm also free to listen to a different perspective without doing any condemning. We can even seek to be persuasive with one another, right, about political convictions, but, but still walking away saying, brother or sister, I disagree, but let's just agree on this. I love you, and you love me, and I'm not going anywhere. See, that's when the church is going to be really, really beautiful and loving and healthy. So I just want to ask us, man, I think the Lord calls us to this this morning, this level of charity and listening and humility. So what's the point this morning? The point is, in some ways, we got to find the right hills to die on. The hills we die on are clearly biblical hills, right? You want to die on a hill that's clearly biblical, like if somebody is endlessly gossiping. Someone cheating on their spouse, someone sleeping around, somebody teaching false doctrine, someone being domineering. someone throwing a temper tantrum, someone having bitterness towards someone that continues to not be dealt with. These are all areas that are clear in the Bible. So in a sense, we will be willing to divide on that if there's no repentance, because God's word is clear. We didn't make this stuff up. God's word is clear about these things that I just listed. And it's not that we're hunting for people in their sin so we can somehow find joy and rebuke or correction. It's just that the lines that we're going to draw are God's lines and not our preferred cultural 
traditional lines. Please hear me well, though. I'm not saying this is, this is simple. I'm not saying this, this isn't tricky at times. But the Bible is crystal clear on what it isn't crystal clear on at times is hard to know, and well-meaning people oftentimes disagree about this. But if we find ourselves in that place, I pray that, that God's grace would cover us and allow us to show that same kind of grace to one another that we've been shown by him in the gospel, right? See, the gospel should be the mechanism by which people are the most peaceful, loving, humble, gentle, listening people in the whole world. It's the opposite of what we see in our culture right now. And when we take this text seriously this morning and apply it to our hearts, the church is going to stand out as a beautiful city on a hill that's united in a culture that's deeply, deeply divided. And let me just say this too. I, I want to be the first to admit that I've screwed this up. The Bible draws my, Jesus' words this morning in Matthew 15, draw my heart to repentance. I've done what the Pharisees are doing in this text. I've elevated my preferences to God's word status such that I look down on someone who wasn't doing things the way I think they should. So I need to practice repentance. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus is calling the Pharisees to repentance. He calls us to repentance. And praise God this morning for the cross that Jesus bore the condemnation that I deserve as I'm wrong, as I'm tempted to wrongly condemn others. Praise God that the tomb is empty, proving that I can trust God, that my sin of elevating my preferences over God's word has been dealt with. Praise God that he sent his spirit to live in us, to empower us to have a church that looks like charity, humility, and love, the fruit, the result of God's spirit alive in us. So let's keep believing that vine family and let's keep doing it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you how it shapes us, how it helps us. Lord, I pray that we would be this kind of church that is passionate about what you have said, that we are people of your word and we just want it more than anything as it's a light to our feet. God, we pray that you would give us this grace to embrace what you've shown us with passion, with conviction, and be willing also to know when we've gone too far and we've elevated our preferences and man-made rules to the same level as what you have shown us in your word. So Lord, give us help by your spirit to know the difference. Lord, we confess that it's tricky sometimes. It's hard. Would you help us by your spirit, by your word, God? Would you give us humility? Would you give us greater humility? Would you give us the ability to listen? Would you give us the ability to um, be corrected? Would you give us the ability to, above all, love one another earnestly from the heart? May it be so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.